In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the winter of 1863, Union troops surrounding Vicksburg were themselves besieged by high water. Rains were heavy and continuous, U.S. Grant remembered, and because of the war, levees had been neglected, and now they failed. Grant writes, the whole country was covered with water. Troops could scarcely find dry ground on which to pitch their tents. Malarial fevers broke out among the men. Measles and smallpox also affected them, attacked them, he said. So imagine soldiers like Job covered with swords by the thousands. When word about these dismal conditions reached the north, there was a hue and cry. Grant had not disclosed his strategy and no one could figure out what he was up to. And now soldiers were dying in their own camps. Many citizens and many in the press demanded his removal and replacement. This is all reported in Grant's memoir, which many say is the best memoir any president has written. And it's at this point in the book that Grant tells us one of his beliefs concerning leadership. He calls it a superstition, but it sounds to me like a pearl of wisdom. He writes, everyone has his superstitions. One of mine is that everyone should do his duty to the best of his ability where assigned by competent authority without application or the use of influence to change his position. I had no idea myself of ever having any large command, nor did I suppose that I was equal to one. Having been selected, my responsibility ended with my doing the best that I know how. If I had sought the position or obtained it through personal or political influence, my belief is that I would have feared to undertake any plan of my own conception and would probably have awaited direct orders from my distant superiors. Grant believed that people that had sought a job said, I'm the one for this, choose me, are always going to be finding a way to cover their behind. And he said he noticed that generals that had done that were always taking notes whenever they asked for something from higher-ups, money or troops, and didn't get it, they would make a note so as to be prepared to say, when failure came, this was not my fault. In other words, if Grant's being general had been his own idea, he'd be more inclined to doubt his own best judgment and to second-guess his own decisions. It was the fact that others, higher than he, had recognized, had recognized his skill and judgment and called him to high rank that added strength to his convictions. Doing what seemed right to give his army the best chance to win the battle was his duty, and nothing more and nothing less. Think about that, reflecting on my decades in the priesthood. It started with a call. Growing up, I had heard my father talk about his sense of being called to the priesthood a feeling that he'd had in college, but had deferred at that time out of a sense of his own unworthiness. 
And then it was deferred to answer a call to serve his country in World War II. And then it was deferred to help build a growing family business. His story is that one day after a business trip to a wine and dine event at the Kentucky Derby, he and my mother were on their way back from Lexington to El Dorado and at Memphis. He pulled the car off the road and the two of them sat in silence and finally mother said, well, what's wrong? And he said, I just can't do this anymore. Almost shaking, meaning I can't run a company anymore. He was number two. Even though he loved the company and he loved the work and he loved the people that he worked with. He said, I just feel that God is calling me to be a priest. Okay, my mom said, and that was that. I grew up knowing that about my father's call. When I was young, people sometimes asked me if I was going to follow in his footsteps and be a priest. He had, would have had a similar worthiness problem. But I felt that I, that really wasn't for me to say or aspire to. Priests were called to that rank by competent authority. It wasn't a job one applied for. I hadn't heard or felt a call, so I made other plans and was working on a PhD and looking forward to a career as an American history professor. And then I began to feel a call. It wasn't a voice or a flash of light. It was a persistent intuition that rather quickly turned into a conviction. And that was that. I've lived by that conviction. And ever since, I've been guided by that kind of persistent intuition. One of them sent me back to school about mid-career to get a doctorate. And then another one from New York sent us back home to stay in Arkansas. I felt called to a place, home. And later in this place, Little Rock, I felt called to a job, this one. I think General Grant's wisdom applies just as well to leading churches as it does to leading armies, happily with fewer casualties. Something that I had previously suspected and can now confirm is that being a cathedral dean sometimes feels impossible. There is more that needs doing than can be done. I'm sure that that's true really probably in any job. I've learned, and you've learned too, that I'm better at some parts of this job than I am at others. But as long as I'm giving the whole package, the old college try, doing the best I can as I see how, I feel the peace about it that Grant felt at Vicksburg. If I'm doing the best that I know how, then there's a rightness in that, and I'm doing my duty. My duty this time of year is to cultivate in this room a spirituality of stewardship. Jesus tells us of a man who went on a journey, leaving his servants in charge of his affairs, the man's affairs. And then the man was a long time gone. Let's spell that out. That traveler is God. And his affairs mean life on planet Earth, and life in the USA, and life in Little Rock, and life at Trinity, and life in our neighborhoods, and in our homes, 
and in our jobs and ourselves. Left us in charge of all of that. By God's gift, we are free to make decisions about ourselves. We are free to do that. When the writer Walker Percy contracted tuberculosis, he was a very young doctor. He was sent to a sanitarium in Saranac, New York, and he had a lot of time to read and think. I'm probably going to die here, he wrote to a girl he loved back home. And if he was going to die, he wanted to know what, when he died, he'd be giving up. What's the worth of a human life that he would have lost? And he decided that its worth is priceless because of a secret ingredient, freedom. One of the novels he would write later in life, he describes a moment of epiphany about seeing freedom, which he had never seen before. He hadn't known he had it. He said, imagine being born with gold-tinted corneas and then undertaking a lifelong search for gold. You'd never see the gold. So what was my discovery? My discovery was that I could act. I was free to act, to turn right or turn, turn left or to just sit down in a culvert. And Percy decided that he would give up his medical career, which had barely gotten started, and go ask the girl back home to marry him and try his hand at writing novels. And he also decided to take instruction in the Christian faith and be baptized, because also while he was there, he had read Thomas Aquinas's Summa, Theologi Summa Theologiae from the first page to the last, and he decided he believed it. In a spirituality of stewardship, freedom is the fuel. In Jesus' story, the traveler gave some of his servants more to be in charge of than he gave others. But what Percy saw is that even a tiny bit of freedom is a fortune. A mustard seed can move a mountain. Our church, the Episcopal Church, doesn't make freedom out to be the opposite of faithfulness or duty. Rather, freedom is duty's privilege. In the 40 years since I heard my call to the ministry, the Episcopal Church has made a major change or two. I'm thinking of women's ordination and gay marriage. Each of those issue changes raised its own issues for debate at the time. But underlying them both was a question of, does the church have freedom to do that? That is, is the church free to consider changing long-established rules for living? Have we been left in charge to manage our affairs that way? And some, of our, some faithful Christians and other groups said, no, the church is not free to change anything like that. But reading scripture, it seems to me that we have been left in charge of our affairs that way. And in fact, we have been called to do so by a supreme, competent authority. We have done so in our church to the best of our ability, whether we felt fully competent or not to manage the discussion. And I also see that both of those two changes have been fruitful. So I'm a proud Episcopalian, and I'm also a gung-ho American, because our country, despite its spectacular sins, 
is grounded on the truth that God has made us free. This land was made for a spirituality of stewardship. God bless the USA. On a personal level, our affairs include our time, our talent, and our money, and our complicated family histories, and our tremendous passions, and our challenges. We are appointed to decide what we will do with all of that, including when the winter rains break through the levees and we feel like Job. And we have to remind ourselves that giving our best is all that we are called to do. And the competent authority has seen fit to invest us with that responsibility. I see and I deeply appreciate how much so many of you have taken on in your lives and for this church and what's been gained because of that. God bless you. In the Bible, the traveler returns eventually, and the stewards line up to show the master how they've managed his affairs. So with freedom comes accountability. In a spirituality of stewardship, freedom is the fuel, accountability is the compass. When asked to show the fruits of their labors at the end of time, General U.S. Grant steps up and says, well, God, here's Vicksburg. Turns out I knew what I was doing all along. Walker Percy, next in line, shows the novels that he's written and the daughters he has raised as a faithful husband to that hometown sweetheart who said yes. And he also managed through his whole life a terrible family burden. His father and his grandfather had both committed suicide, and probably his mother did too. The saying around town was that no Percy man will live past the age of 55. Can you imagine growing up with that? In freedom, Walker Percy lived until a natural death at the age of 83. Well done, Walker, says the Lord. When life is over, we'll all step up and show the master how we've used our freedom. And we'll know that doing the best we can, as best we know, is all that we can give. And that God expects no more.